is Miriam Brinker, and um, I want to give you a disclaimer. There is no original idea in my head, not one. Everything that you're about to hear me say today has been garnered from people that are much smarter and have done much more research than I. Okay, let's get started. The book of Genesis is probably the most important book ever written. It is the foundation for every other book of the Bible. Without Genesis, it is without Genesis, the rest of the Bible cannot be understood. It would be like a bridge with no support or a building with no ground floor. Genesis means beginnings or origin, and it unfolds the record of the beginning of the world, of human history, of family, of civilization, of salvation. It is the story of God's purpose and plan for his creation. As the book of beginnings, Genesis sets the stage for the entire Bible. The influence of Genesis in scripture is demonstrated by the fact that there are at least 165 passages in Genesis that are either directly quoted or clearly referred to in the New Testament. Many of these are referred to more than once, so that there are at least 200 quotation or quotations or allusions in Genesis in the New Testament. And in the many instances when the Old and New Testament refer to Genesis, there is no evidence whatsoever that the writers thought of the events or the people as anything other than authentic. They weren't regarded as mere fables or allegories. These writers of scripture viewed Genesis as historical, true, and dependable. You can reject the historical validity and divine authority of the book of Genesis without undermining and renouncing the authority of the entire Bible. One commentator states, if the first Adam is only an allegory, then by all logic, so is the second Adam. If man did not really fall into sin from his state of created innocence, there is no reason for him to need a savior. If all things can be accounted for by natural processes of evolution, there is no reason to look forward to a future supernatural consummation of all things. If Genesis is not true, then neither are the testimonies of those prophets and apostles who believed it was true. Je Jesus Christ himself becomes a false witness, either a deceiver or one who was deceived. And his testimony concerning his own omniscience and omnipotent, omnipotence becomes blasphemy. Faith in the gospel of Christ for one's eternal salvation is an empty mockery. End quote. Genesis reveals the purpose and nature of God. He's our creator, sustainer, judge, and redeemer. It reveals the value and dignity of human beings, showing that we are made in God's image, saved by grace, and used by God in the world. It reveals the tragedy and consequences of sin depicted in the fall, separation from God, and judgment.
It reveals the promise and assurance of salvation, how God grants forgiveness and promises a Messiah, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The storyline of salvation, which begins in Genesis 3, is carried throughout the entire Bible and is not completed until Revelation chapters 21 and 22, where the eternal kingdom of redeemed believers is gloriously pictured. The author of Genesis doesn't identify himself in the text, but several passages in both the Old Testament, including Exodus 17.4, Numbers 33.2, and Joshua 8.31, and the New Testament, John 5.46, Romans 10.19, and 1 Corinthians 9.9, among other passages, credit Moses as being the author. Genesis was written after the Exodus, which happened around 1445 BC and before Moses' death, which occurred around 1405 BC. The initial setting of the book of Genesis is eternity past. God spoke all creation into existence and equipped it to sustain the culmination of that creation, a man and a woman who were meant to enjoy fellowship with him and bring glory to his name. Genesis was probably given to the people of God after they had left Egypt and after their wilderness wanderings. It was given as they were standing on the edge of the promised land. They had been there before. They had come to the point of entering the land God had promised Abraham his descendants would inhabit. And then in faithlessness, fueled by fear, had refused to go in. So they had spent 40 years wandering in the desert as a result. Now here they were again, having come full circle. They were about to enter Canaan and take the homes and properties of these Canaanites, a people who had been cursed by God. It was in the midst of this that they were given the books of Moses, the first five books called the Pentateuch, the first of which is Genesis. It was in this context that they received and heard again this account of God's creating and ordering the world, the fall into sin, the wrath and judgment of God, and the promise and hope of restoration. It was in this context that they heard again how God, in fulfillment of his promise, chose their ancestor Abraham and then Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph to show his faithfulness to them. To show that he is God who not only makes but keeps his promises. God revealed himself and a worldview to Israel in Genesis that contrasted sharply with the worldview of Israel's neighbors. In writing Genesis, Moses made no attempt to defend the existence of God or to present a systematic discussion of his person and works. Rather, Israel's God distinguished himself clearly from the false gods of her neighboring nations. Moses revealed theological foundations, including God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, man, sin, redemption, covenant, promise, Satan and angels, kingdom, revelation, judgment, and blessing. He explained to Israel how they came into existence as a family whose ancestry could be traced to Eber. Hence, they were known as Hebrews, Genesis 10, 
24 and 25, and also to Shem, the son of Noah, hence the Semites, Genesis 10, 21. God's people came to understand not only their ancestry and their family history, but also the origins of their institutions, customs, languages, and differing cultures. Last year, in our study of Genesis 1 through 11, the origins of the universe were revealed. We saw God creating the world in a majestic display of power and purpose, the climax being the creation of a man and a woman made in his own image. Before long, sin entered the world, and Satan was unmasked. Bathed in innocence, creation was shattered by the fall, the willful disobedience of Adam and Eve. Fellowship with God was broken, and evil began weaving its destructive web. In rapid succession, we learned how Adam and Eve were expelled from the beautiful garden, their first son turned murderer, and evil bred evil until God finally destroyed everyone on earth except a small family led by Noah, the only godly person left in the entire world. Even after this second chance, so to speak, man's rebellious sin culminated in building the Tower of Babel as a monument to themselves. They had ruled God out of their thinking and in their own arrogance imagined that they could rid themselves of him. God's answer was a swift and lasting judgment. Man's language was confused and they were forced to scatter. They had to separate and collect in regions where their own language was spoken. In this account, Israel first understood not only how so many nations, peoples, and languages came about, but also the rebellious origins of their enemy, Babylon. That's where we concluded our study of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. That brings us to our Genesis study this semester on the life of Abraham, covering chapters 12 through 25. The men known as the patriarchs in the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, lived during the time before Israel's captivity in Egypt. They were the fathers of the Jewish people because their descendants became the nation of Israel. These men and their wives were also great saints of the faith, the faith that finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Each of these men was a real human being, not superheroes. There's no Thor or Captain America in the Bible. They were made of the same flesh as you and me and with similar strengths and weaknesses. God also called each to a unique walk of faith and to face unique circumstances and challenges along the way. This is the very thing that unites them, even though they were everyday people with flaws and very evident sin areas, every one of these patriarchs lived a life characterized by faith in God. Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, devotes a quarter of the book of Genesis to the story of Abraham. There is no record of how or when God first revealed himself to Abram, who was a pagan idolater living in Ur with his extended family. But in response to this revelation, not only Abram and Sarai, his wife, but also Terah, his father, and Lot, his nephew, all took the first step and left Ur of the Chaldeans, migrating northward until they came to Haran. Ur of the Chaldeans was an important city in southern Babylon, or Mesopotamia, 
which would be the southern part of Iraq today. It was a luxurious city and a center of moon worship. Haran was a frontier town of the Babylonian Empire, and like Ur, was devoted to the worship of the moon god, whose name was Nanar, and they also worshipped his wife, Ningal. There the pilgrimage stopped, and they remained for about 25 years until the death of Terah. Genesis 12, 1-3. Then the Lord told Abram, Leave your country, your relatives, and your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. With these verses, Moses established a primary focus on God's promises to Abraham. This narrowed the Israelites' view from the entire world of peoples in Genesis 1 through 11 to one small nation, Israel, through whom God would progressively accomplish his redemptive plan. This underscored Israel's mission to be a light to the Gentiles, Isaiah 42, 6. God promised land, descendants, and blessing. This threefold promise became the basis of the covenant with Abraham found in Genesis 15, 1-20. The rest of scripture bears out the fulfillment of these promises. The story of Abram begins with him leaving his old home and traveling to a new place that God would show him. At this point, we know very little about him. What we do know is that he's 75 years old, lives with his father in a place called Haran, and has a nephew named Lot. However, we will discover that this man is destined to become the father of the Jewish people and an important link in the family line of Jesus. The Bible introduces Abram by telling us that the Lord had told him to leave his father's house and travel to a land that the Lord would show him. Abram didn't know where he would be heading or what he would find when he got there. There's no AAA triptych. There's no GPS. There's no, hey Siri, take me to the land that God will show me. It's a wonder that he had faith to obey at all. Yet this is the major characteristic of the man we know as Abraham. He was a man of faith. In this day, many different people groups had already settled in the area that we know as the Middle East. But there was no group of people known as Israelites or Jew. Abram himself would be the first to be called a Hebrew, meaning one who descended from Eber. There was no central authority or domineering nation ruling over the region. There were, however, many fortified cities scattered around the area from Haran in the north down to the southern tip of the Dead Sea, which is probably where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. Traveling could be dangerous, um, and there was a risk from bandits and natural hazards. Therefore, people usually traveled in groups, Merchants used large caravans to carry merchandise from place to place, and such processions usually included armed guards to protect against attack. In the southern regions, water and food were not readily available, so a traveling party needed to know where they were going, how they would get there, and what supplies they would need along the way. 
Yet God called Abram to start walking without a destination and without any guarantee except, except his own promise. Abram demonstrated his desire to please God. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all his stuff, a lot of stuff, and set forth on a grand adventure of following the Lord. He gets to the land of Canaan, and guess what? It's full of Canaanites. Put yourself in Abram's place. God has called you to travel to an undefined location with the understanding that he's going to give you many descendants and make your family into a great nation. But when you arrive, you find that the land is already populated by people who most likely are not going to add you to their Christmas card list. At this point, God bolstered Abram's faith by reiterating his promise and by adding some new information. In the future, the Lord would appear often to Abram to repeat his promise and reveal new de details, but only after Abram obeyed. Abram obeyed what he had been told to do, so God encouraged his faith. Abram chose to believe God even when his promise seemed impossible. How do we know this? Well, he built an altar and he worshipped. Everywhere Abram traveled, he built altars to the Lord and proclaimed his name to the people around him. Abram's life would be characterized by his constant moving from one place to another. He would never settle permanently in any one location, and he would spend the remainder of his days living in tents rather than a permanent house. Ladies, God expects his children today to live the same way. I'm not saying living in a tent. I'm saying he doesn't always reveal the fullness of, our, of his plans for our lives and the lives of those we influence. Instead, he tells us what we need to know in order to obey him one step at a time. Moses paints a very frank portrait of Abraham. He records moments of great triumph and joy, but not to the exclusion of hours of humility and disgrace. This balanced description is very different from the idealism of other ancient Near Eastern historians. His detailed descriptions of Abraham's failures point to proof for the inspiration of the book of Genesis. Moses goes from painting a picture of the majestic truth of creation to a personal and intimate narrative of a man, his wife, and family. He writes with personal warmth and historical objectivity. Okay, so Abram has been wandering about the land of Canaan, living in a tent and pasturing his flocks. Then along comes trouble. There is a famine in the land. This famine would lead Abram to Egypt, where we see him exhibiting all sorts of ungodly behavior. He begins to fear what will happen to him in Egypt, even after he had trusted God with the great unknown of Canaan. He's convinced that he will be killed because Pharaoh will see his beautiful wife and want her so much that he will eliminate Abram. She must have been one looker is all I'm saying. Abraham was made of the same flesh that we are, which is encouraging news. Here he lapsed from having great faith in God's promises and was blinded by fear to the point of selling out his own wife. 
God intervened and Sarai was protected and returned to Abram. And Abram never made that mistake again, right? Well, no. The entire episode would be repeated when Abraham met Abimelech, another king in Genesis 20. Satan loves to use fear to draw God's people out of obedience. When this happens, we are tempted to take matters into our own hands. Abram did this when he devised what he thought was a clever plan to avoid being killed. And the results were bad and far-reaching. Satan uses fear of the future, the past, and the present to mislead us in the same way so that our choices also reap results that are negative and far-reaching. When anxiety creeps in, we are wise to remind ourselves of all that God has done for us already and to focus our minds on his promises. God's word drives out the devil's fears. Abram continues to wander and Lot continues to go with him. Due to the extent of their wealth, it wasn't possible for them to continue traveling together. A conservative estimate of Abram's traveling household would be at least 1,000 people. He also had flocks of sheep and herds of cattle. And the people who worked for him almost certainly had their possessions also. Add to this the, the household of Lot, and you can see that Abram had an enormous amount of people moving around with him. Can you imagine the logistical nightmare? Listen, my family can barely manage a three-car caravan to a restaurant, never mind leading a thousand people while herding goats. After years of traveling together, Abram and Lot part company. Scripture tells us that Abram's focus was on the things of eternity rather than on the things he owned. Hebrews 11, 9 and 10. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Lot, on the other hand, was more interested in earthly gain. His selfish choices would eventually lead him to live in Sodom in great spiritual peril. From a human perspective, there was no reason for Abram to not settle in one location, build permanent structures, fortify the area with a large wall, and even establish a small standing army. Had he done that, Abram would have been just like his neighbors. This was the age of great empires such as Egypt with feats of architecture, art, and politics. Even smaller city-states were fortified with surrounding walls, heavy gates, and well-trained armies. Much of Canaan consisted of the area known as the Fertile Crescent, an arc of land from Ur, down to Beersheba that is very productive. The area south of Beersheba, called the Negev, is much more arid and rocky. This area is suitable for grazing flocks in the winter season, but shepherds must move their flocks north for pasture during other times of the year. This lifestyle is the one Abram chose rather than settling himself inside of solid city walls as Lot eventually did. 
He spent the remainder of his days as a nomad, moving from place to place and pasturing his flocks where there was food, as dictated by the seasons. And again, this isn't normal behavior for a man of great wealth and power. His motives rested squarely on his belief that God's promise to him was true, and this faith was guiding his decisions. At the core of his character, Abram believed God, and the Lord counted him righteous because of his faith. Genesis 15:1. Did he ever slip up? Yes. We will see as we study his life this semester many, many times. There were times when, despite all of God's personal appearances to Abram, he was still unsure that the promises would come to pass. And there were times when Abram thought that God needed his help to bring the promises about. God didn't owe Abram anything. Nevertheless, he demonstrated his great mercy and patience in dealing with Abram. And guess what? God never changes. He exhibits the same grace and mercy in dealing with the doubts you and I have today or tomorrow or 10 years from now. He's in the sanctification business and he will bring his children along in their walk until he brings them home at the end of their appointed time on earth. Our actions have a far-reaching impact on the lives of others. Abram and Lot made different decisions about where to live and what lifestyle to adopt. And those decisions influenced both of their families and the entire nation of Israel for hundreds of years to come. Excuse me, to come. Sarai doubted that she would ever bear a son and decided to give her servant Hagar to Abram in order to bring forth the birth of the son of promise. She probably didn't even consider her plan was sinful. This was the prevailing custom of that day when a woman was barren. Neither she nor Abram imagined that it would lead to countless deaths and acts of persecution that have continued between the descendants of Ishmael and those of Isaac for several thousand years to this very day. It's a sobering thought that our obedience or disobedience will affect the lives of others in ways that we can't foresee. Sometimes it's easy to think that some small disobedience or sinful indulgence won't make a difference in the scheme of things. But we don't know what long-ranging impact that compromise may have in the lives of others. The entanglements of the world grow on us little by little. It's a difficult balance because as the Lord's people, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. We have no choice but to live in society, yet we are to be on guard to ensure that these entanglements don't become the focus of our lives. The Apostle John warns us in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. 
but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Thirteen years after the birth of Ishmael, when Abram is 99 and Sarai is 89, God appears to him again and reaffirms his covenant. Then he changes Abram's name to Abraham, meaning father of many nations. His new name underscored the fact that God had a special purpose for him as the father of his chosen people. This is to be an everlasting covenant between himself and Abraham's descendants, and they will have a sign, circumcision. Circumcision, the removal of the male foreskin, wasn't entirely new during this period of history, but the special religious and theocratic significance that God applied to it was entirely new. In this way, the Lord identified the circumcised as belonging to the physical and national lineage of Abraham. There wasn't anything magical about this operation, and it certainly didn't purchase a relationship with God. It was done solely as an outward sign of the covenant. Sarai is also to receive a new name, Sarah, meaning princess. The Lord was changing her name as well as her husband's, indicating that she was also chosen by God for a special purpose. At this time, he goes so far as to name the son, Isaac, that Sarah will birth when she is 90 and Abraham is 100. God will sovereignly establish his covenant with Isaac, and it is through him that God would bring about his chosen seed. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This truth was important in the prophecies concerning the Messiah, whose birth would be the most miraculous, impossible human birth of all time. Compared with Jesus' virgin birth, Isaac's birth was a piece of cake. In James 2.23, Abraham is called the friend of God, and God chose him to be the founding father of his chosen people. Why Abraham? What was so special about him? What set him apart from the world around him? What did he do to, de to deserve such honor? The answer is nothing. Abraham didn't deserve honor from God any more than you or I do. God chose him because of his grace, not because of Abraham's own merit. God grew Abraham into a person of merit a man whose life is an example to us. Abraham was a man of faith. We can see that in his belief of God's promise for a son, even when it seemed impossible. He was also a man of obedience and quick to do what the Lord commanded. And he was also a man of flesh, a man who sometimes didn't completely obey. And this, in this we can find encouragement realizing that God chooses ordinary people to be his friends, even when we fall short from time to time. Moses weaves many examples in the life of Abraham that show the Lord's work in his life, both high and low points. Among them, God's visitation on his way to pour down judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's deception of King Abimelech, and the Lord's intervention to keep Sarah safe, the fulfillment of the Lord's promise in the conception and birth of Isaac, 
his dealings with Hagar and Ishmael, the testing of Abraham's faith when the Lord asked him to sacrifice his only son on Mount Moriah, the death and burial of Sarah, finding a bride from Isaac for Isaac, who wasn't from the pagan peoples of Canaan, until he records the death and burial of Abraham at the age of 175. Moses presents a full life lived well, not perfectly, but well. Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord declared him righteous because of his faith. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this study that we begin um, this semester. I pray, Lord, that you'll open our hearts and our minds to accept what it is that you have to teach us from the life of Abraham and Sarah. I just pray, Lord, as we go forth from our study today, that uh, you will keep us safe and bring us back next week, Lord, prepare to learn what you have for us to learn through the study of your word. Amen.